Well, I'm excited to be able to introduce our um, speaker this morning, our preacher. Brent, come on up. Brent is, as you know... Brent is our youth pastor, <clears throat> excuse me, youth pastor intern. He started here officially in June, and he has really hit the ground running. I don't know if you've had been able to have much interaction with Brent, but we are so blessed at this church, believe me, to have him come here and lead our youth and lead our church because he is gifted in many different areas. Uh, Brent is from the Northwest uh, originally. He went to North Park University and then North Park Seminary. Yay. So we really like that. And uh, this internship is actually the last piece that he needs to complete so that he will be completely done with seminary. But he finished his classes last May. So Brent is going to give God's message to us today. And I just want you to know that he looks very young, right? You'll love that in about 50 years. Um, he looks very young, but don't let that fool you because Brent has a spiritual depth that is way beyond his years. And I think today we all can expect to really hear God speak through him confidently. So thank you, Brent. And this is his first sermon. So it's his debut appearance. We get to see it. Awesome. Good morning. So when I was in middle school, uh, I, it was a hard time in life for me. I was bullied and I was made fun of and I was picked on. When I was in middle school, I was picked on for the things I said, the way I talked, the way I acted, the way I dressed. Uh, suffice it to say, I was not a cool kid. I was a unpopular kid. And this was a really hard time in life for me. Uh, some of the things this did for me is it gave me depression. It gave me anxiety. Another thing it did is it created in me a deep pain and a feeling of unworthiness and being unaccepted. And what this did is it planted in me a deep desire to be wanted, to be liked, and to be admired by my peers at school. Now, at that point in time, I wasn't liked by my peers at school, but I learned to put my hope in Jesus Christ. And this was a great thing for me because Jesus' love for me was not based on any merit of my own. It wasn't based on how cool it, I was or the way I dressed. I felt this acceptance from Jesus for who I was. And, um, and this was so great. But let's fast forward now uh, to the summer between my sophomore and junior year of high school. Uh, in this summer, I went to something called Chick, which stands for Covenant High Schoolers in Christ. Has anyone been to Chick here, by any chance? Good, good show of hands. Okay, well, um, it's a great youth gathering. About six thousand uh, Covenant High Schoolers meet together at the University of Tennessee for seven days, and it's this amazing time where. We have worship sessions, and there's talks, and people just get to feel what it's like to be surrounded by 6,000 people following Christ. Uh, we're going to be taking a group of high schoolers there in the summer of 2015. So if you will be in high school at that time, I hope you can come. At Chick, what happened for me was I started to become more of a leader in my youth group. 
during the worship sessions, I guess I just raised my hands a little bit more or something. But somehow during, during this time, I just started to stand out to my youth group. Uh, another way this happened was through the talks we had. We had these talks where we talked about God, and I started to share my opinion a lot more. And what this did is this planted in people's heads this thought that maybe I would be a good pastor. And um, my a previous pastor from when I was like in elementary school happened to be at Chick. His name's Brett Woodman. He, he met with me. He's like, Brent, how's it going? Let's have lunch. And so I went to lunch with him, and he met with me. And at that time, he said, I think you should come to Covenant Bible College, or CBC for short. Uh, Covenant Bible College is in Strathmore, Alberta, Canada. And it's a one-year Bible college where people can learn more about God and see if ministry is for them. And so I said, okay, sounds pretty good. And then at the end of Chick, we were given Bibles. And we all wrote in the front and the back of Bibles, much like high schoolers write in yearbooks. And so I found, when I got my Bible back from passing around the van, I found about 20 signatures and messages from my peers. And they all said, you should be a youth pastor. You should be a pastor. And so I had this professor telling me I should be a pastor. I had my peers telling me this. And I also felt called by God. So at this point in my life after Chick, I was like, that's it. I'm going to be a pastor. And uh, I decided I was going to go to CBC after high school and uh, maybe go to North Park after that and see what happens. Okay, fast forward again. Two years later, we're now at my senior year of high school. Uh, Once my senior year hit, I had done a number of things to get myself out of the bad social situation I was in in middle school. I had... I asked, my sister was a bit more popular, and so I asked her, I was like, well, what do you say if someone says, how's it going? Because I usually just started to tell them, how's it going? And she said, no, no, you should just say not much and smile. And I said, okay. Um, (laughs) So my sister kind of taught me how to talk the talk, how to walk the walk. I figured out how to operate, how how to be social. And I did things to stretch myself and to stretch my comfort zone. Um... I joined weightlifting and cross-country, and I started to join, and I joined choir in addition to band. And one of the big things that I stretched myself by doing is I went to Germany the summer in between my junior and senior year. And I had to learn a new language, and I had to learn new customs, and this made me stretch and grow. So by the time I entered my senior year, I was far more outgoing and extroverted and confident than I had ever been. And what happened at this time is as I became outgoing, I realized that finally my peers liked me at school. Finally, my deep desire to be liked, to be wanted by my peers was met. But what happened is I slowly but surely started walking away from the Lord. I started walking away from Jesus because my new focus in life was not my hope in Jesus. It was my hope in my reputation and how my peers saw me at school. Uh, as I said, I joined cross-country, the cross-country people and myself, we liked to play ultimate frisbee at lunch. And often the games went long, and so since the games went long, we just often ended up skipping classes. And as I did this, I realized, wow, people think it's cool that I skip class and that I don't really care that I'm skipping class. And, um, and so I started doing it more, and then I started, uh, I got involved in a few other things that weren't too good. Um, 
And when I was doing this, I fu- people had always known me as the kid who always does the right thing. And so for me, it was actually really thrilling to suddenly cut loose. And I thought this was freedom. And as I thought I was free, and I continued to do these things, I started to hurt some friends. And I started to sacrifice some of my old friendships. I began to live a double life. I still prayed and I went to church, but I also had a little licentious living on the side. Uh, Now, the bad things I participated in were pretty tame and pretty infrequent compared to some other people I knew. But the point, the point was I was moving away from the Lord, not towards the Lord. The thing that was bad about this situation was the direction I was headed. Though my position in life was a decent one, my disposition was not so good. At Chick, God had made it clear to me that he wanted me to pursue some sort of career in ministry. However, at this point in my senior year, my plans for my life had changed. I was previously going to go to CBC, and now I decided to go to the University of Oregon, or U of O for short. Now, God can use people of all fields, all vocations that go to all different types of schools. But for me... That wasn't the situation because I wasn't going to U of O to pursue God. I didn't even have a major in mind. In fact, I had no ambition. The only reason why I was going to U of O was so that I could hang out with my friends. Instead of being service-oriented or God-oriented, at this point in my life, I became me-oriented. See, my youth group and my family... And I had all seen and heard God calling me to go into ministry. So for me, deciding to go to U of O was like a Jonah moment where I was running away from God. In fact, uh, to add insult to injury, uh, when I was when I was getting close to spring break, the CBC professor who had previously met with me and said I should go to CBC, he happened to be in my town. He happened to be staying at my friend's house. He called me uh, like five times, and I ignored his call every time. And he he eventually, he was done with his vacation, and he went back. So I completely avoided him. Um, Now, it was spring break. And though I had decided to hang out with my friends, uh, thankfully and luckily, my dad guilted me in going to a Mexico mission trip. Now, uh, I wished I had been going to the Mexico mission trip for God, but I decided to just go because my dad said I should go. And it ended up being an amazing experience. The first night, we were staying at a church in California. Uh, We were just sleeping our sleeping bags on the ground. And that night, I was leading worship, which is kind of a scary thought because uh, I'm not normally given a microphone to sing, but that's what I was doing. I was leading worship, and uh, when the first song came... All of a sudden, I had this amazing experience. It was like God had ripped off this thick curtain that was blinding my vision. And suddenly, everything that I thought was gray and ambiguous was revealed to be black and white. I clearly saw, I'm surrounded, there's like 70 other high schoolers, and I can see that they're pursuing a relationship with God, and I wasn't. And I knew this, and I knew I was heading in the wrong direction. I felt like such a fake. So that night... 
after the worship was over and we were in our sleeping bags, I just cried. I just poured out my spirit. I was crying because I was like, I'm headed in the wrong direction. What have I done? It's April. Like, people are done. Like, colleges are done accepting people. I won't get into CBC. What have I done? Um, after the mission trip, I applied to CBC anyways. And I got in. So that was a great thing. And so this, in a sense, was a conversion. I, I, I was walking towards sin for a long time. Well, not for a long time, but for a long time during my senior year. And now I was walking towards Christ again. But this wasn't like a light switch that was flipped. And suddenly, I, before I was wholly devoted to sin, and now I'm wholly devoted to God. Uh, I changed my direction, but I still slipped up here and there. So often, I wonder, what was it? What was it that made me able to switch? How could I have had a great relationship with Jesus Christ and found my hope in Jesus Christ and then suddenly switched and now my hope was found in something as shallow as just my peers' acceptance? Well, in reflecting on this, I think it was because I had a cheap understanding of grace. You see, my understanding of grace at the time, I think was wrapped up in the American ideal of freedom. I remember in fifth grade hearing about freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And to me, freedom just meant autonomy, to do and say whatever I feel like doing. I remember countless car trips. I was in the car with my older sister, and she would uh, she'd be singing the right lyrics to a song, and I'd be singing the wrong lyrics because I never knew lyrics to music. I still don't. And as I was singing them, probably not in a sweet voice, she would say, can you please stop it? And she would get annoyed. And I would say, I can do whatever I want. It's a free country. Uh, this was something I said often to her. I didn't know it at the time, but I equated freedom with autonomy. To me, freedom was doing whatever you felt like doing. And this, I think, when I learned about Christian freedom in youth group, is the lens I saw freedom through. This was grace to me. Grace was freedom from the rules of the Old Testament. Grace was as simple as this. God gave us rules. They're impossible to follow. We mess up, and then God gives us grace again and forgives our mistakes. We try to follow God when we can, but we don't worry about it too much. God gives us grace. The important thing is to believe there is a God. So long as you're basically good and you believe a God, you're safe. You're free. Under this theology of freedom... I found myself spiraling away from God and towards idolatry. As I started my senior year, I looked at myself and said, I'm basically okay. I do a few wrong things here and there, but God loves me. He'll forgive me. My position, it's generally, it's a good one. He knows I'm all right. Now look at this picture. This is a picture of the Sneetches. And uh, if you've read this book at this point, the Sneetches don't have stars on their bellies, but they want stars on their bellies. So they go through this machine, and suddenly like that, for a few bucks, they get a star on their belly. Now this is kind of how I saw grace. Uh, We were sinful, we want to be forgiven, so we we go to God, we ask for forgiveness, he stamps grace on us, we're sinless, and we just kind of walk away. And then whenever we mess up, we return to the machine. But see, there's no concept of relationship here. You just kind of get some grace whenever you need it and come back to God. But there's no continual relationship. This picture reminds me of a weak view of grace. 
What I did not know at the time is that in having such a weak understanding of grace, I had begun to slowly but surely switch my allegiance. In my mind, I still loved God, but my focus was taken away from God. I was worshiping freedom more than I was God. I was unaware of what it says in our passage in Romans 6, 15 through 16. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves as someone, as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Paul knew what I did not That as humans, we cannot go without a master. We will choose a master, a Lord, a God, and once we offer ourselves to this master, we become its obedient slaves. There's no such thing as a true autonomy or freedom. There's no third option where we can be free of God and free of sin. We will either be enslaved to God or to sin. In the Garden of Eden, God created us to obey him as master, and this was righteousness. We followed all of God's rules, and we looked to him as our master. This was our right relationship to God. Pastor Peter told us a few months ago, righteousness is not a status. It cannot be earned, but it's a state of relationship. To be righteous is to be in the right relationship with God. Someone could be sinless, practically. They could be pure, They could do everything right, but if they're not in a relationship with God, they're not righteous because righteousness is not a status. It's a relationship. Although in Eden we were in the right relationship with God, we decided to become our own gods. By picking and eating the fruit, that's what sin is. It's a choice to follow ourselves. It's a choice to do things our own way, to be autonomous. In verse 16, Paul says, once a human chooses a god, They cannot help but obey it. This is how we were designed. Augustine, St. Augustine, had something he called a hierarchy of love. In this hierarchy, one was to love God for God's sake, love neighbor for God's sake, and love self for God's sake. We love our neighbor and ourselves and everyone we know because we love God first and foremost. If someone were to love something other than God, For the sake of itself, this was idolatry. Even if someone is to love their spouse for the spouse's sake, this would be idolatry, according to Augustine. Their spouse would become their God. The idea is that we only have the capacity to love one master. So whatever we put most of our energy, effort, hope, and ambition towards, this becomes our master. Just like it says in our passage, everything else in our life then is below that master. This works when God is on top. In this way, we love God above all else, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. In this way, we love our family for the sake of God, but we're willing to sacrifice time with our family for what God asks of us. We love ourselves, but we are willing to sacrifice our needs for God's needs. Often, when we mess up this hierarchy, we put other things besides God's on top. When this happens, we're willing to sacrifice our time and our allegiance to God for ourselves or for our neighbor. Jesus knew this, and so we tackle this topic often. In Matthew six twenty four, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
you cannot serve both God and money. Now, you can substitute money for any other idol, and the message becomes the same. If your master isn't God, your master is sin, and this leads to death. Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, this sounds pretty harsh, right? Well, luckily, Jesus isn't actually asking us to hate our parents or a sister or a brother. What's going on here is a hierarchy. Jesus is speaking in a hyperbole to make a point. In comparison to our love for God, our loves for other people should pale in comparison. God has to be our number one focus in life, and everything else must come second. The amazing thing about this ordered love is that by loving God first and foremost, we are empowered by that love to love other people far deeper, far more compassionately than if we had just tried to love them under our own terms and we didn't put God first. This is why our allegiance must belong to God. Otherwise, this idolatry leads to shame and to death. As it says in our passage in verse 20 through 21, when you were slaves to sin, you are free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at the time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. When we commit idolatry, when we take something else up besides God as our focus, this leads us ultimately to be ashamed and to walk towards death. In hindsight, I can now see that this is where I was headed when I was in my senior year of high school. When I was in high school, I had a weak concept of grace, as I've said before. I thought it meant trying to follow God's rules, but if you make mistakes here and there, it's okay. This allowed me to slowly drift in the wrong direction. I slowly made being liked my God. I slowly fell into idolatry, and I switched who my master was and where my obedience was given. I didn't feel that it was that bad, really. I felt like I was just following my heart. This is something I need. Why would God be mad? A weak concept of grace allowed me to see this as a great issue when in actuality it was black and white. By pursuing being liked and admired, I was living out verse 20 of our passage. I was enslaving myself to sin and freeing myself from the control of righteousness. I was freeing myself from a right relationship with God as my master. I did not realize that this pursuit of autonomy was actually only freedom from God. It was not freedom in an altruistic sense. It was actually an enslavement to sin. What our Romans passage is getting at is that whether you are a slave to God, whether you are committed to God, and therefore righteousness, or a slave to sin, and the act of obeying one master, you end up freeing yourself from your former master. So what is grace if it isn't this cheap concept of grace, if it isn't just merely a status changer? Grace is both being freed from enslavement to sin as well as being captured by God and binded to him instead. When Christ died on the cross, he not only forgave our sins, but in the act of doing so, he removed our separation from God and brought us back into right relationship with God. And not only did Christ remove our sin and separation, he gave us the Holy Spirit to guide us in our relationship with God. John 16.13 says this about the Holy Spirit. He, the Spirit of truth, comes. He will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit is with us. He's continually seeking to guide us towards Jesus. But if we think grace is just a prayer and just a status, we'll miss out 
on the Holy Spirit's promptings. Just like righteousness, grace is not merely a status. It's an active, dynamic state of relationship. Humanity was created to be in an intimate relationship with God. And grace gets us back into this loving relationship that we were created for. So why does this theology of grace work better than a cheap theology of grace? Well, first, I think that concept is helpful and it's convicting. To just realize the sheer gravity of what grace is doing is powerful to me. It's not just freeing us from idolatry, but binding us to a new master. Jesus died and rose for us, removing our sin and separation, as well as giving us the promise of our own resurrection. And the Holy Spirit lives in us and guides us towards God, which allows us to be in relationship with God the Father. Grace is a Trinitarian act that binds us to the Trinity. But we can't stop at mere conviction, because conviction lasts a few hours, maybe a few days. Conviction doesn't have the power to last. But a robust theology of grace does more than convict us, it actually converts us. How do switching masters work? Are we one day completely devoted to sin, and then we become saved by God, and we become completely devoted to God? Is grace like a light switch? Instantaneously we switch it, and our nature is converted. Once we were blind, and now we see in 2020 vision. Unfortunately, it's not. I wish it were so. Paul says, even after we receive grace, we must continue to run the race and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This passage is talking about our trajectory. The question is, where are we headed? What path are we on? What direction are we facing? Are we facing towards God and seeking a relationship with him? Or are we facing away from God and seeking a relationship with sin? In this picture, I've labeled Grace is a status only. Once a person is saved, they're safe, they're in. They've said the prayer, they're in. Once they were out, they're good to go. Now, uh, this is pretty simplistic. I think that a more robust theology of grace can be seen in the next picture, where grace is a powerful act that restores right relationship with God. And in addition to this salvation, humans are still able to walk towards Christ or away from Christ. There are many passages in the New Testament that describe Christian life as a race. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 describes it like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It can make us, the author, sorry, the author of Hebrews is addressing the polarizing dynamic of the two masters, sin or God. Sin hinders us, it easily entangles us. It can make us weary and lose heart. And has the power to stop us from running the race and turn the other direction. If we give in to sin and we turn away from the race, we give up God as our master and become enslaved to sin. Hebrews says we avoid this, giving in to sin, by fixing our eyes upon Jesus. We must realize what the goal is when we enter the race. The goal is a deep faith in Jesus Christ and serving him as our master. 
In 1 Corinthians 9, 23-24, it describes the race like this. Do you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. We should run in such a way that we are seeking the prize and a goal. In our faith as Christians, we should live in such a way that we are earnestly seeking Jesus. Our relationship with Jesus is the goal. 1 Corinthians says we do this by training. Just like how athletes watch what they eat and how much they sleep, and athletes take care of how much they exercise, athletes are doing strict training. They're building muscle memory so that when they hit the race, they're ready to go and their bodies do the rest. Christians should be training our spiritual muscle. We should be building up its muscle memory so that when we enter the race, we can fix our eyes upon Jesus. When we're saved by grace, we are not given a nature in which suddenly we have a devoted prayer life, we have a steadfast commitment to serving our neighbors as ourselves. Unfortunately, I wish that were so. But we must train. We must have the goal in mind. It takes practice and time to develop a desire to pray and to read scripture regularly. And it takes time and practice to develop a heart for God and our neighbor. If you look at the language of Romans passage, it's talking about trajectory. In verse 16, it says, being slaves of sin leads us to death. And being slaves of obedience leads us to righteousness. Again, in verse 19, it says, being a slave to impurity leads to ever increasing wickedness. And slaves to righteousness leads to holiness. Having sin as one's master does not mean a person can't do a good thing or two. And having grace, having Jesus, God, as master does not mean that a person can't do a bad thing or two and slip. A commentary I read on Romans described a story kind of like this. The author, when he was in college, had a fishbowl. It was like this big. And he, he had a lot of fish. And because they had not much room, they would just circle around and around and around. And pr- Pretty soon he's like, maybe this is cruel. Maybe they should have a bigger aquarium. So he buys an aquarium that's like five times bigger. And he puts the fish into the aquarium. And what happens? For like the next four days, the fish stay in that tight formation. It takes them to day five before they realize their new surroundings, before they realize their new environment, before they've trained themselves for this new reality. Although through grace we are saved and brought back into right relationship with God, we haven't reached a finish line. We're like foreigners in a new land who need to learn the new language and the new customs. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says this about the life with the Holy Spirit. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We have a guarantee of our inheritance, but we have not yet arrived. As our passage says, we offer ourselves as slaves to righteousness in order that it leads to holiness. We have not yet arrived. We are now set on the right path by Jesus Christ, but we must put effort into this relationship. Has anyone here ever wondered, if I've been saved by grace and I'm in a relationship with God now, why do I still sin? Just as when we are enslaved to sin, we work towards ever-increasing wickedness under 
our slavery to righteousness, or also, to put it in another term, under our commitment to God, we must pattern our lives towards ever-increasing holiness. Not that we can ever earn grace, or that we'll ever be free of sin until we die or Jesus comes again. But that as it says in Romans six seventeen, we pattern our lives towards holiness as a sign of whose we are, as a sign of the direction we're facing. We will always have residual inclinations of the heart to sin, and therefore we must pattern our lives after our new master. When we were enslaved to sin, think of how much effort, scheming, and planning and work we put into it. Why does it surprise us that relationship takes effort? It's not just a matter of our souls desiring God. As biological creatures, we have to retrain our brain. And that means replacing one pattern of thinking with a different pattern of thinking. We have to cultivate new habits of acting, thinking, and obeying. So recently, I got married. That's, um, that is our reception. Uh, she's over there, Eva Larson. She's very beautiful. She read scripture for us. Um, marriage is pretty exciting, guys. But uh, when we were engaged, at times, it kind of felt like we were maybe married. I remember I would go over to Eva's parents' house, which is always a good time, and we were there. And uh, we'd take breaks from planning to go on a walk on the beach, and we'd hold hands. And when we did that, I just felt like life was so amazing, right? When we were on the beach going for walks, I was like, well, how is marriage different? Because this is pretty sweet. Um, Both of us expectantly wondered, what will marriage be like? On that big day when we got married and we set our vows and put rings on each other, um, it was a momentous occasion that we'll always remember. And it seemed to kind of be the pinnacle uh, so far. And then we went on our honeymoon, and a few days into it, I asked her, do you feel any different? Like, when you put on that ring, did your nature change? Were you suddenly, like, more devoted to me? Did you, do you feel different? And she's like, no, not really. <laughs> and she's like, it, it, she said, it kind of feels like we're playing house. And, and I agreed, it does. It feels like we're playing house. It's unreal. It's like, we're married now? This is weird. Um, later on, a few weeks later, uh, we were back at our apartment, and I'm like, what about now? Does it feel different? No, it still feels a bit like we're playing house. It was an awesome, it is an awesome experience, but it's also surreal. And it didn't feel as different as we thought it might. Now, I can say after about three months, it does feel different now. It's starting to feel different, and that's because of what we decided to do. We decided to face each other in love and head towards each other. We decided to retrain the way our brains think. After being married a few months, I've realized it takes effort. We have different standards of cleanliness, different ways of cooking. We occasionally argue about a few things. Apparently, marriage is something you grow into. It's not an instantaneous conversion of nature. Even I, out of love for one another, we choose to face each other. We choose to walk towards each other in love. We have to cultivate our love and persevere. We know what the goal is, and we have to train for it. We have to train that muscle memory so when our inclination is to get mad after a stressful day of work, the muscle memory is there in our heart. And when we see each other, we suddenly relax, and we just embrace each other in love. When... 
we started this training in premarital counseling. We started this training when we started to talk about our feelings, to talk about our life stories. And this training continues to this day. And we train because we know the goal. The goal is to have a loving marriage in which we seek each other's good for God's sake. We were once single, and now we have to retrain our brains. We have to think about others' needs and desires. We must relearn how to do our daily life. I've only been married for about three months, and I can tell that different factors make a huge difference in our relationship. Things that help our marriage, spending quality time with one another, having deep conversations together, being honest about our feelings. When we do these things, this helps us to be in allegiance with one another. If we wish to face God as our master and become slaves to righteousness, if we wish to be committed to God, should we not do the same thing? Shouldn't we work on our relationship? Shouldn't we spend quality time with God in prayer and in spiritual disciplines and earnestly seek to obey and serve him? When we work on our prayer lives, when we study scripture and obey him by pursuing acts of justice, mercy, and kindness to our neighbor, we live out what it means to have God as our master, We live out what it means to be in allegiance to him. This is our response to the God who saves us. Peter talked last week about fasting. He, uh, Pastor Peter, is giving up food for two solid weeks. He is only drinking juice and water. And it's diluted juice. Uh, To me, that's pretty crazy and pretty amazing. He's doing this as a way to cultivate his relationship with God. He's creating a vacuum in his life for God to fill so that he'll have to lean on Christ all the more. This is a way in which we can walk towards Christ. Now, I'm doing a reverse fast um, where I'm taking on a practice. Uh, I'm, now, this is something I've done many times before, and it's something I'll continue to do. Um, unfortunately, I haven't done it lately. But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to spend the first 30 minutes of every day in prayer. Um, these things, these spiritual disciplines, can help us to walk down the right path. I encourage you all to join with us if you feel led and either fast and take something out of your life, creating a vacuum for God to fill, or take something significant on, a spiritual discipline, uh, reading scripture a certain amount of time, uh, praying. These spiritual disciplines can help us to seek Christ. Now, we do these things not as a way to earn salvation or become more perfect, because that's impossible but we do it as a way to better live out what it means to be in a relationship with God. Let's pray. God, we pray for you to help us examine our lives in the direction we are heading. Are we living like you are our master or are we living enslaved to sin? We ask you, Jesus, to forgive us our sins and enter into our lives. Holy Spirit, Direct and teach us how to run towards Christ and how to fix our eyes upon Christ. Is there something that we should take on or give up to help us train our spiritual muscle, to give us muscle memory so that we can grow deeper in love with God? Help give us discernment and wisdom as to how we can best connect with you and grow in our relationship with you. We pray this, Lord, in your holy, most precious name. Amen.